We are in a rather curious portion of Scripture this morning. It is a bit unusual, but extremely significant. It is important to understand, for it teaches us of God's grace as well as the reality of judgment. The focal point is God's grace to Ahaziah, even as God administers his judgment. As we look at 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 51 to 53, we have the background. As you can see, it's important that we don't always observe not only uh, chapter breaks, but even book breaks, where you can see how this story continues right from the end of 1 Kings and into 2 Kings. So as we look at this portion of Scripture, our theme is lessons concerning God's grace and His judgment. Lessons concerning God's grace and his judgment. The first thing we want to note is that though provoked to anger, God is gracious in dealing with Ahaziah. If you look with me at verses 51 to 53, it reads, Ahaziah, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel and Samaria in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother and the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. And here's the summary statement. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. So God is provoked. God is angered at what Ahab excuse me, Ahaziah has been doing. But in God's anger and in God's provocation, God is gracious in giving Ahaziah time to repent. You note now in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 1, it says, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Just one simple statement, one simple line but it is there to inform us of a need that was present in the kingdom. Here was a new challenge. Here was a new difficulty, an opportunity for Ahaziah to look to God seeking his assistance, but he did not. He did not. So God brings another situation into Ahaziah's life, giving him an opportunity to repent, verse 2. Now, now, in association with what we just read in verse 1, now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. It was God's grace that Ahaziah did not die immediately when he fell through the lattice, but rather got sick as a result of the fall. God could have easily ended Ahaziah's life at that very moment. Having fallen through this lattice, he could have fallen to his death, but he did not. I also like to point out that it was God's grace that when falling through the lattice, it resulted in Ahaziah becoming sick. Becoming sick. Verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Ahaziah could have fallen through this lattice and have experienced no injury whatsoever. 
And some might think that that would have been far better if Ahaziah would have been just able to fall through this lattice and got up and dusted himself off and would have been just fine. People would have said, wow, look at the grace of God. But I want to point out to you that it was the injury that caused the religious stirring in Ahaziah's heart. Notice in verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. It was his sickness that motivated Ahaziah to think about life and death, to think about issues of utter importance. And it was because he was laying sick, realizing that he was close to death, that now he seeks guidance and direction for his life. God is gracious in making himself known even in a time when he was not sought. For Ahaziah does not turn to the Lord in his sickness, but instead turns to the god Baalzebub. Notice verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick, so he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. He's wanting to discern what the outcome of this illness is, but he doesn't turn to the true and living God. He turns to Beelzebub. Ahaziah does not seek the Lord's instruction, does not seek the Lord's direction, does not seek the Lord's help, but God provides his guidance and understanding anyway. Even though Ahaziah did not seek it, God provided Ahaziah with that guidance. Notice verse 3. But, the contrasting preposition, but the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise. That should be conjunction, not preposition. Arise. Go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. God sends Elijah to intercept these messengers of the king. God is gracious in the exercise of authority over the messengers of Ahaziah. God has three, these three messengers returned to Ahaziah, and, had not, and they had not gone to Ekron. Notice verse 5. The messengers returned to the king and said to them, Why have you returned? He knows that it has not been time enough for them to have traveled to Ekron and get back, so here are these messengers standing before the king, and the king says, why are you here? These messengers had not followed the instruction of the king, but rather the instructions of Elijah. Rather than following through and doing what they were told that was to go to Ekron, they listened to the words of Elijah and returned 
to Ahaziah. This was a testimony of God's authority that exceeded that of Ahaziah the king. God could thwart the plans of Ahaziah without any difficulty whatsoever. This was God revealing that he had more power than Ahaziah had. And God in his grace is going to tell Ahaziah what will be the outcome of his sickness and even why. God has a message for Ahaziah, verse 6. They said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord. This is God's message. This does not come from Beelzebub. This comes from the living and true God. God tells Ahaziah what the outcome of the sickness is going to be at the end of verse 6. Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. That is what Ahaziah wanted to know. What was going to be the outcome of this illness? God says it's going to result in your death. But furthermore, God in his grace reveals to Ahaziah why Ahaziah is sick and why Ahaziah will die. Notice verse 6. They said to him, there came a man to meet us and said to us, go back to the king who sent you and say to him, thus says the Lord, and here's the reason. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. It was because... He had not sought the God of Israel, but he had sought this false God instead. Therefore, you shall not come down from there. It was because of his rejection of the true and living God. Now, what we must keep in mind is that Ahaziah, in his time of need, did not turn to the Lord. Nor did he repent when he heard of this judgment. On the one hand, I submit to you that it should not be surprising to us that Ahaziah did not turn to the Lord in the time of need, for this particular portion of the Word of God is consistent with and illustrative of the entire life of Ahaziah. This is just one story. This is just one glimpse. This is just one picture of what was true of Ahaziah's life. It can be summed up in his worship of Baal and his rejection of God. Remember in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 51 to 53, it tells us in 52, he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, walked in the way of his father and the way of his mother, and the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He served Baal, worshipped him, and provoked the Lord. That was the characterization. That is the summary of Ahaziah's life. Ahaziah, like most people, died as he lived. Let me say that again. Ahaziah, like most people, died as he lived. We know the story of the thief on the cross, that as 
Jesus was crucified, and as people were mocking, and even the thieves on his left and on his right were mocking him as well, there was one thief who at the last moment repented, uh, said, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and he experienced God's forgiveness. We know that story, but we must keep in mind that it was one thief who believed, and the other thief continued in unbelief. We hear about deathbed conversions, but they are rare. They are rare. It is very unusual that people come to faith later in life. A survey done by the International Bible Society reveals some frightening statistics. According to this survey done by the International Bible Society, they found that 83% of those individuals who come to know the Lord as their personal Savior do so by the age of 14. 83% of all those who come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior have done so by age of 14. The next major age group is 14 and 19. And according to Barna Research Group, their findings are that in America, unbelieving adults ages 19 and over, only 6% of those individuals come to faith. Only 6% of people over the age of 19 have come to profess the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. So it should not be surprising to us, and it should really be alarming to us to realize that most often mature people do not repent of their sins. On the other hand, it should be quite surprising to us that Ahaziah would not turn to the living and true God in the time of his need. We, wouldn't, we would say, well, isn't that the obvious thing to do? Isn't that what he should have done? Ahaziah did know about God, but he didn't know God. Let me say that again. Ahaziah knew about God but he did not know God. The Israelites in general knew about God. It is this fact that is repeated three times in our text and becomes foundational to the judgment. If you look at verse 3, at the end of verse 3 it says, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you're going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Verse 6, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire at Beelzebub, the God of Ekron? Verse 16. Is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word, therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die? Ahaziah should have known the God of Israel. 
there was a nationalistic association with God. Ahaziah should have been aware of, in fact was aware of, the long history that God had with the nation of Israel. God had led the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt into the promised land. God graciously and miraculously worked among the children of Israel in leading them through the Jordan River and the Red Sea in a miraculous dividing of the waters and their walking across in dry ground. He had led them in the wilderness by a cloudy pillar by day, a fiery pillar by night. He had provided for them by giving them manna in heaven. He knew the history. He knew the stories. More recently, he would have known of the events that took place in his father's lifetime and how God had shown himself to be the God of Israel in sending fire from heaven, which is a key factor in our passage today. Remember the incident on Mount Carmel. In 1 Kings chapter 18, starting at verse 21, Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long are you going to limp between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. So on the Mount of Carmel, the issue is, which God are you going to follow? If God is God, follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but put no fire on it. And it will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, it's well spoken. The God who answers by fire he is God. Remember the prayer that is associated with calling down this fire from heaven and consuming that sacrifice on Mount Carmel, 1 Kings 18.36. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Notice the history. God of Abraham, God of Isaac, and the God of Israel, the God of today. Let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, and that I am your servant, and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord God, are God, and you have turned their hearts back. Then fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offerings and the wood and the stones and the dust and ticked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. 
Ahaziah knew that story. That took place in his own father's lifetime. Ahaziah knows of this consuming fire that proved that God was the true and living God. Notice 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. All he had to do was hear a description, and immediately he knew who he was. He knew it was that prophet. He knew it was the one that had always given his father a difficult time. He knew that he was the one who stood on the mount and called down fire from heaven. He knew that God had revealed himself as the God of Israel. And yet he had rejected and went to ask of Beelzebub, the God of the Akronites, for leading in direction. I say to you in a somewhat similar fashion, the United States has historically been a Christian nation. That is, the worship of the true and living God has predominantly been the worship that has taken place in the United States. We know the story of the pilgrims who came to the United States fleeing religious persecution and established their headquarters in New England. Most of us know that the founding of Harvard and Princeton were originally founded to prepare men for the ministry and to proclaim the gospel of the true and living God. We have a motto on our currency that says, in God we trust. We pledge allegiance to the flag of one nation under God, and virtually everyone in the United States understands who that God was and is. That when our founding fathers came and, and established this nation, it was not the God of Allah, it was not the God Buddha, it was the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Jehovah God that the people worshipped, and yet many today do not turn to this God even though there is this vague remembrance, even though there is this history, even though there is an association, even though most people in the United States have some understanding of who God is, yet there's a failure to turn and worship and serve him. Ahaziah should have known better, and so should so many in our nation as well. But the point is that Ahaziah had not only abandoned God as far as the nation was concerned, he abandoned God in his own personal life. His own personal life. But God in his grace displays his power, authority, and displeasure that results in judgment. Ahaziah does not have power over God. God has power over Ahaziah. Look up with me now at our text, 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 9. Then the king sent to him, that's Elijah, a captain of 50 men with his 50. He 
went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. We must understand as we read this text the hostility that is behind the soldiers coming to Elijah. They have come to arrest Elijah and ultimately to do him harm. For it tells us in verse 9, O man of God, the king says, come down. These were soldiers, not messengers. They are a sizable contingent of 50 men to arrest just one man. And the threat that these men pose is seen in verse 15. For in verse 15, after the third contingent, it says, And the angel Lord said to Elijah, Go down to him and do not be afraid of them. Or do not be afraid of him. You see, they were coming to do him harm. They were coming to arrest him and do him in. These soldiers refer to Elijah as a man of God, but they show no deference to Elijah as a man of God. They use the term only as a formality. They do not recognize that he is truly a man of God and all that that means. It is the king of Israel who is summoning Elijah at the end of verse 9. It says, the king says, come down. The fire from heaven is significant, for it is a verification of Elijah as God's prophet. Notice verse 10. But Elijah answered the captain of the 50, if I am a man of God, you said I'm a man of God. If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Fire was the burning issue of the day. Don't miss the significance of the fire. Remember the lesson that was to be learned on Mount Carmel when Elijah called down fire from heaven. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and I've done all these things at your word. The fire was a demonstration that he was the true prophet of God and that God was the real God of Israel. The fire was also a means of protection of the prophet. The fire was a witness that God is to be feared more than any man, including a king. But most importantly, the fire is a symbol of God's judgment that results in death, of which I will say more in just a little while. The king's response to the destruction of the first group of soldiers is to double down and continue to resist God. Verse 11, again, the king sent to him another captain of 50 men with a 50. And he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. The king, though he heard about the first group, does not repent, does not recognize the authority of God or his prophet, but instead sends another contingent of 50 men. The second group of soldiers come even more forcefully and arrogantly than the first. They come now with an order from the king. Verse 2. Excuse me. Verse 9. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50. He sent, went up to Elijah who was sitting on the hill and he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Now verse 11, 
Again, the king sent to him another captain of 50, men with his 50, and he answered and said to them, O man of God, this is the king's order. Notice in verse 9 it says, he says, and in verse 11 it says he ordered. In the Hebrew, it's a, it's a striking difference. This second time, he says, this is the king's decree. You have no choice. The king is decreed. You come down from there. And not only do you come down, come down quickly. The king is not messing around. The king is angered. Who do you think you are to defy the king? He has ordered, come down. And come down quickly. The king means business. It is a threat that is being proposed against Elijah. Elijah's response, verse 12. But Elijah answered them, If I'm a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. The response of Ahaziah again is not to repent. Instead, a third group is dispatched. And here we see God's grace and judgment. God spares those who humble themselves before him. Note the difference in approach of the third group of soldiers. These soldiers humbled themselves before Elijah and ultimately the Lord. We notice three important differences. First, the difference in their posture, verse 13. And the king sent the captain of the third with his 50. And the captain of the 50 went up and came and noticed this and fell on his knees before Elijah. Humbled himself, got down on his knees. The difference in their presentation. They did not come with a command they came begging. This word to entreat literally means to beg. They were on their knees. They were begging Elijah, verse 13. The king sent the captain of the third 50 with his 50, and the certain of the 50 went up and came and fell on their knees before Elijah and entreated him. They begged him. And notice the difference in their plea. They came not with threats against Elijah's life, but rather they came pleading that their own lives would be spared. They realized that it was not Elijah's life that was being threatened. It was their own. Verse 13. Oh, man of God, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Verse 14. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Don't let that happen to me. Don't let that happen to our men. All three of these groups of 50 soldiers are doing their duty. But they went about it in a far different way. However, unlike the first two groups of soldiers, these truly realized that when they were approaching Elijah, they were approaching a man of God. 
When they addressed him, it was not in mere formality. It was a real recognition that he represented God, a God who was holy and just, a God who was powerful. They knew that they had no power over Elijah, nor did the king. Threats were meaningless. They knew all they could do was ask and implore and pray that their lives would be spared. They realized that their life was in Elijah's hand and ultimately God's hand. Here is God's grace in the midst of judgment. And it is the key idea to this passage. So here's the great takeaway. The ultimate lesson is that our lives are in God's hands. Our lives are in God's hands. That's what this passage is about. Ahaziah's life was in God's hands. The soldiers' lives were in God's hands. The lives of the nation were in God's hands. And Elijah's life was in God's hand. Every life was in the hand of God. God's response, the captain and his men were spared. Elijah accompanies them to the king, verse 15. So he arose and went down with them to the king. Elijah has nothing to fear, for God will protect him, verse 15. Do not be afraid of him. And judgment is pronounced upon Ahaziah, verse 16. And said to him, thus says the Lord. Now he's standing in Ahaziah's presence. And Elijah says, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. What we need to understand is that Ahaziah does not humble himself. Ahaziah does not admit his wrongdoing. He does not admit his rejection of God. He does not repent of his worship of Beelzebub and his unwillingness to worship God despite God's grace time and time and time again throughout this situation. Verse 17, so he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. He experiences God's judgment, this despite the warnings that God had repeatedly given. In conclusion, let me just slow down and really take you through this passage and understand with me that the life of every single person is in God's hands, whether we recognize it or not. That should be humbling to us. We should trust in God as the giver and sustainer of life. That should be a great comfort for those who place their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it should be a cause of great fear for those who do not. This portion of scripture is not a popular passage of scripture. I've found very few sermons that 
are based on this particular portion of Scripture. I can assure you that if you turn the radio on this afternoon and listen to the Christian radio station, that this will not be the text of any message you hear. Many commentators are embarrassed by this portion of Scripture and the judgment that God brings upon the soldiers. There's a tendency to reject and seek to explain this text away as though it doesn't teach what it teaches. But what I want you to see this morning as you leave, first I want you to see God's grace throughout this passage. There is a very important lesson that we cannot afford to miss. The fire in this passage demonstrates the reality of God's judgment. The fire coming down from heaven is a judgment that is consistent with an even greater judgment that is yet to come. Jesus himself warns of this coming judgment of hell. Jesus said in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 and 5, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I warn you, these are Jesus' words, I warn you whom you are to fear. Fear him who after he is killed has authority to cast in hell. Yes, I tell you, Fear him. Fear him. Hell is the lake of fire. Hell is the place of judgment. In Revelation chapter 20, verse 11, it reads, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From the presence of the earth and sky fled away, and no place was found and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Revelation 20, verse 15. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The scriptures are very clear about a hell, about a judgment that's coming. But God in his grace also talks about a way to escape that judgment. For there is a book of life. That book of life records all the names of those who have placed their faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. You know the Lord is your Savior. You have no fear of the lake of fire. You have no fear of God's judgment for Jesus bore your judgment on the cross when he bore your sins. The issue is whether or not you are going to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, whether you're going to humble yourself and acknowledge God's grace and letting this message known to you and telling you of this future judgment. The only way we escape the fires of hell is to place our faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ as our personal Savior. Many today ridicule the idea of fear as a proper motivation to turn to Christ. But it is Jesus himself who is the one that tells us that we are to fear. 
Fear is a very, very real reason to turn to Christ. And it is the evil one's work in our day and age to try and to remove that fear from our hearts. As though God would never, ever consign a person to a lake of fire. The Word of God teaches otherwise. And what I want you to see this morning is God's grace. It's God's grace that He has revealed to us that judgment is to be feared. There's a great hymn of the faith. Probably almost all of you know it. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, and now I see. But the second verse, it was grace that taught my heart to fear. It's the grace of God that he instills fear in our hearts. Fear of an everlasting judgment. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There's no reason to fear. Herein is the greatest takeaway of all. Our lives are in God's hands. Our lives, both temporal and eternal, we must trust in Christ to escape judgment. Our lives are not in the hands of kings, not in the hands of doctors, though I'm certainly not against medication and going to doctors, but they ultimately cannot sustain life. God is the giver and sustainer of life. Our lives are not in the hands of soldiers. Our lives are not in the hands of other gods. Our lives are in the hands of God solely. And it is to him that we need to turn in our time of need. It is him that we need to fear. It is him that we need to honor. It is him that we need to trust. It is him that we need to serve. Our hands, our lives are in the hands of God. And I'm saying to you this morning that that should be a terrifying thought if you have never ever accepted Jesus as your Savior. And I plead with you to acknowledge the grace of God, how God has been good to you. And if you're here this morning, you've never trusted in Christ, God has graciously kept you alive to this day. He has allowed you to hear this message of salvation. He offers you this gift of salvation. He shows you the reality of judgment. He is a God who will punish. Judgment is real. Don't be an Ahaziah who refuses to humble himself and repent, knowing that God is the God of Israel. Our lives are in God's hands. A terrifying thought for those who don't know him. But the most comforting thought for those who do. So my closing appeal to you this morning is, if you have never, ever 
Ask Jesus Christ to save you from your sins. Let this morning be that day. Receive his grace. Receive his love. Receive his mercy. He pleads with you to trust in him. Escape the judgment that is yet to come. Let us pray. Almighty God, we are thankful for your grace. We are thankful that your word is clear, that you have told us of coming judgment. And you've told us how to escape that judgment by placing our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. And this morning, I again plead with anyone here who has never, ever prayed and asked God to forgive them of their sins based on the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross to take away the penalty of our sins, experiencing the judgment so that we would not have to. This morning, I ask you to flee that judgment. And if you want to receive God's gift of salvation, his gift of grace, his gift of love and mercy, I implore you, pray and ask Jesus to be your Savior. If you desire that this morning, would you quickly raise your hand? I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to ask you to come forward. I just want to see that you have placed your faith and trust in Lord Jesus Christ. Anyone at all this morning? Oh, Father, we praise you and thank you for your goodness and grace. Lord, thank you for being a God of love and mercy. We know that you're holy and you are just. But we're thankful that judgment can be escaped for all those who place their faith and trust in you. Open our hearts and minds to receive your forgiveness, to trust in your goodness, to acknowledge our need of you. Teach us that our lives are in your hands. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.